Welcome to today's St. Paul's Church of the Voyager podcast. I'm Pastor Rob Fiesler, and I am glad that you are listening today. John Chrysostom, a fourth century archbishop, advised preachers every sermon should be an agony of the soul, a passion to begat Christ in the souls of men. My earnest sermon in this current series, A More Christ-Like Christianity, might bring Christ into the crevices of our souls where we've not yet permitted him entry. Yes, it is a, a lovely thing when somebody accepts the invitation to receive Christ as Savior. But in the unique call that God has given to me, I am called to focus on those who have received Christ as Savior but who have yet to receive him in his fullness as Lord over every aspect of our lives. And make no mistake, that's something that I continually pursue. This is certainly a primary function of the church to help us receive Christ in his fullness, to to provide a holy discomfort such that we would long to deepen our discipleship. As one pastor observes, in addition to those outside of the church, Jesus wants to save Christians too. As I've said a couple times, uh, this is a series where I think it will be particularly fruitful to go back and listen to each of the seven messages. As Sunday upon Sunday, we have been building upon the prior weeks. Now, in addition, as this week's uh, final sermon is a more Christ-like hope, uh, the series just prior to this one, Our five-week Hope Unfettered series is also worth revisiting. Both that series and our current series can be accessed and viewed on our church website, or you can listen to those sermons on our new podcast, St. Paul's Voyager. Our scripture reading for this morning is Romans 8, 18 through 25, but I'm actually going to begin just a little bit before that, in the middle of verse 15. When we cry, Abba, Father, it is that very spirit bearing witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if in fact we suffer with him, so that we may also be glorified with him. I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory about to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of children of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not of its own will, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope 
that the creation itself would be set free from its bondage to decay and will obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning in labor pains until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly while we wait for adoption, the redemption of our bodies. For in hope we were saved. Now, hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes in what is seen? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait with patience. In 1827, an Irish clergyman, John Nelson Darby, began to formulate a novel method of biblical interpretation focused on the end times. As Darby saw it, the current age, the mid-1800s, would get steadily worse until Jesus returned. Just before Jesus' return, Particularly faithful Christians would be raptured into heaven, thereby spared a three-and-a-half-year tribulation, after which Jesus would come and reign on earth for a thousand years. In 1909, an American lawyer who was deeply influenced by Darby, Cyrus Schofield, published the Schofield Reference Bible. Schofield's version included detailed notes to explain passages of Scripture according to Darby's new system of thought. For Darby and Schofield, the key feature of Christian hope is the anticipation of God's dramatic and decisive intervention to upend the disorder of the world and to set it to rights. Focusing primarily on a few biblical texts, particularly in Daniel, Ezekiel, and Revelation, Darby and Schofield, and more recently Hal Lindsey and Tim LaHaye, believe the Bible foretells events, figures, and times when a final apocalypse will unfold. Given the popularity of Lindsay's book, The Late Great Planet Earth, and Tim LaHaye's Left Behind series, it may come as a surprise that the vast majority of Christian Bible scholars and theologians are not on board with a Darbyist way of interpreting Scripture. From the dates that I've mentioned, 1827 and 1909, you can see that Darby's mode of scriptural interpretation is not yet 200 years old. The Schofield Reference Bible is just over 100 years old. This means that this approach to interpreting scripture was a significant departure from the ways that our Protestant forebearers, Martin Luther and John Calvin, and a little later, John Wesley, interpreted Scripture. 
For this reason, some see Darbyism as plain fast and loose with the Bible. Just one example. New Testament scholar James Eford writes, to take bits of various scripture texts out of their context and weave them together into a scenario that none of the biblical writers knew anything about is to do violence to the sacred revelation of God. Eford is arguing for a more conservative, a more conventional, a more historic approach to biblical interpretation where we don't read into Scripture things that are not actually there. But I mention this simply to point out that the Darby-Schofield way of articulating hope is both modern and innovative in terms of Christianity's vast 2,000-year history. And so the question is, what did Christians hope for before Darbyism gained its footing and influence? This takes us back to the Hope Unfettered series, where we surveyed the theme of hope as it is articulated in five major sections of the Bible, the Psalms, the Prophets, the Gospels, the Epistles, and in the book of Revelation. Now, had that been a six-week sermon series instead of five, we might have looked at how the early church expressed Christian hope. This is what we're going to do today, looking at the Apostles' Creed together with our reading from Romans. So let's start by noticing how the Apostles' Creed, which is on your screen, which has been the baseline of Christian orthodoxy for more than 1,700 years, has a three-part, a Trinitarian structure, affirming belief in God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Based on the witness of Scripture, particularly the New Testament, the creed also identifies the functions of each aspect of our triune God. And so, God the Father is creator of heaven and earth, and so on. As I point out in new member classes, it's interesting that the Apostles' Creed is silent on several matters we typically assume to be basic Christian beliefs. For example, the Creed says nothing at all about uh, Scripture, certainly not that Scripture is the inerrant Word of God. It also says nothing about how Jesus saves us which has been a matter of great debate among theologians through the ages. The silence of the Apostles' Creed on these subjects raises the question, if these matters were not considered essential from the beginnings of Christianity, should they be now? Or are we, like the Pharisees, just adding unnecessary burdens and barriers to those who might find the gospel attractive. 
Before we delve into what the creed says about the end times or last things, I want to begin by pointing out the three major things in the creed. First, when we say that God is the creator of heaven and earth, this means that our existence is not an accident. Indeed, it, it means that we are intended, that you exist is intended by the maker of heaven and earth. Some of you really need to hear that. As one theologian has said, God's creation, and particularly of human beings, reveals that God does not want to be God without us. But as Paul makes clear, the planet, this planet, and its non-human creatures are also intended by God. Which is why Paul writes that the whole creation is groaning for redemption. And here I just have to say, in light of Liz's children's sermon, so appreciative of Ivan Dunn and Frank Spitzer and Jane New, who I see out picking up trash in our area. And the Emerald Keepers, uh, uh, many of our members are point, part of that group. Second, through God the Son, we learn that we are beloved of God. If God comes in the flesh, suffers, dies and goes to hell and back. Does that not testify to our belovedness? Though we are all prone as prodigal sons and prodigal daughters to forget that we are intended and beloved, Paul says that the Spirit bears witness to our spirit, that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and joint heirs with Christ. Wow. But here's something we need to keep in mind. We are beloved heirs even while we're prodigal which should give us a heart to show other prodigals that they too are intended and beloved of God. And there's more. This is the third thing. God the Spirit is the perpetual reminder that we are not alone in experiences of both joy and suffering. No, we are accompanied even in our sufferings, Paul wants us to know that the Spirit accompanies us in such a way that all things work together for good for those who love God and who are called according to His purpose. As one uh, more recent creed, the creed of the United Church of Canada, puts it, in life, in death, in life beyond death, God is with us. We are not alone. This is life-giving and hope-filled launching point for heirs of Christ. We are intended. We are beloved. We are accompanied by God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Or as some say, Creator, Christ, and Companion. When we prodigals come to know ourselves as intended, 
beloved and accompanied, we cannot help but seek to become Christ-like so that we can share that good news both in word and in action. That said, and brief though it is, the creed actually provides us the contours of the hope the earliest Christians had in Jesus. First, the creed affirms that Jesus was raised from the dead and is seated at the right hand of God, the good, good Father who intended us to be. That means that, that death and suffering, fearsome though they be, are not the end. And so we etch upon our hearts a truth that, that Paul would affirm. Christ's resurrection means that the worst things are never the last things. That's so consistent with verse 18. The worst things are never the last things. Second, the creed, and, and this is consistent with what Paul writes in other uh, letters, asserts the hope that Jesus will return. The classical theological word for this is parousia, a word that means coming or arrival. In saying this, Christians from the earliest times of the church have articulated their audacious hope that the world has not seen the last of Jesus of Nazareth. But here's an important thing that we need to keep in mind. The Christ whose arrival we await will not be different than the Christ who had already come. As Douglas Migliore writes, Jesus of Nazareth came forgiving sinners, healing the sick, feeding the hungry, blessing the children in compassion for the least of these, and yes, in resurrection. So if we read the Bible as saying that Jesus will, will come as an entirely different Christ when he returns, we need to go back and reroute ourselves in the witness of Scripture, particularly the Gospels, because we need to see how God incarnate comes. In Matthew 25, 31 through 46, as we saw last week, Jesus makes it clear that we should not be looking for him in the corridors of political power uh, where there is uh, tremendous economic influence, nor should we expect him to return brutally smiting his foes. It is in the hungry thirsty, homeless, the stranger, the prisoner, where Jesus says, that is where you find me. At the very least, we should never, ever place our messianic hopes and expectations in someone who bears no resemblance to Jesus as he has been revealed to us in Scripture. Finally, the, the creed announces the good news that in that day when Jesus returns, 
He will judge the living and the dead. Now, in case you think you misheard, let me say clearly, when we realize that Jesus is the judge, it is a hopeful thing to look forward to his coming in judgment. As one pastor writes, for the earth to be free of anything destructive or damaging, certain things have to be banished. Decisions have to be made. Judgments have to be rendered. And so prophets like Isaiah, Ezekiel, Micah, and Amos spoke of a cleansing, purging, decisive day, the day of the Lord when God would render judgment. As Rob Bell writes, central to the scriptural vision of God's renewed world is the prophets who announced that a number of things that can survive in our broken world will not survive in a world where God is making all things new. War, rape, greed, injustice, violence, pride, divisiveness, exploitation, disgrace, misogyny, xenophobia, racism, tribalism, nationalism. Can we not hope that all such things will be judged and banished? Genocide, sexual assault, child prostitution, human trafficking, torture, not to mention wild conspiracy theories, telemarketing phone calls, Facebook, and Twitter. Speaking personally now, is it wrong to hope that all that is within me that is disordered and false and broken will be fully judged by Jesus as worthless? When all that is in me that is twisted and dishonest and dark will be uprooted, such a day will likely be the happiest day any of us has ever known. At that moment, too, all that is within me that's generous and honest and loving will be identified. God will know the very steep path that I have walked, the temptations that I faced along the way, and also my deep longings for holiness and goodness. If God is who Jesus reveals God to be, we can have every hope that God's merciful judgment will release us from the grip of past sin and exaggerated guilt because we are included in the story of Christ where nothing stands outside of God's redemptive purposes. As Richard Mao states, we can face the future with a basic confidence, not because we've been provided with a special collection of secret facts about what is to come, 
But because we've been allowed by grace to enter into a relationship with the triune God who desires us to know that we are intended, we are beloved, and we are accompanied by a God who from first to last does not want to be God without us. That was the central hope of the earliest Christians. It's right there in the creed. And I'm betting my life that they were not wrong. Amen. Let's pray. Holy God, there is indeed so much within us that is twisted and broken. So much that we try to hide deep within. And yet, God, you see all these things already and you love us still. You search us out. You're standing there waiting for us as prodigals. God, help us to understand what it is to have hope in you. Help us to trust that the scriptural witness, along with the witness of the earliest Christians, is a solid foundation for the hope that can give buoyancy to our spirits and to propel us to serve the world in a Christ-like love that seeks out other prodigals. This we pray in the name of your Son and our Savior, Jesus the Christ. Amen.